Welcome to the Deep Dive Spirituality Conversations podcast. I'm your host, Brian Russell, and today I'm going to re reflect deeply on the concept of Sabbath. And I'm going to frame it against the day that I think, maybe for the first time, I took Sabbath seriously. And that was after a really exhausting day at work. I've been in meetings all day. I was frustrated. And I was driving home with my oldest daughter, who was doing homeschool at the time, was still in high school. And I was visibly frustrated. And she looked at me as I was driving down the highway. And she said, Dad, why do you work so much? Before I get deeper into this conversation, I want to remind my audience of just a couple of things. First of all, what I'm going to be sharing today about Sabbath is going to be a small excerpt from a new book that will be published in the spring of 2023 with the title, Astonished by the Word. It's going to be released by Invite Resources. And if you're listening to this and you're interested in reading some of my book and maybe in advance of the release, I'm looking for, to start building out a launch team of uh, persons who will support the launch. So if you're interested, I'd invite you to reach out to me directly. You can email me at deepdivespirituality at gmail.com. I'd love to have uh, some folks on board uh, pre-launch. This will be like probably an April launch roughly. And so get the book in your hands sometime in early 2023. Also, if you're interested in Centering Prayer, I continue to host or co-host a monthly Centering Prayer gathering on usually the third Saturday of each month. If you'd like to be invited to that, please reach out. You can sign up for that at centeringprayerbook.com. Again, I'll put all of these things in the notes. And so let's jump into this conversation about Sabbath. <clears throat> Again, it, that day started uh, when my 16-year-old daughter said, Dad, why do you work so much? And it's really interesting that my first response was quite snarky. I was very defensive, and I simply said to my daughter that day, and probably not the most kind way, uh, to buy you all the stuff that you always want me to purchase for you. But I caught myself, and I quickly apologized to her that day, but I struggled to actually answer the question, why is it that I work so much? I've always taken on uh, the label of workhorse. I'm that guy that uh, if you want something done, you know, you give it to the busiest person you know, and magically it gets done. And that was me for so much of my life, and I quickly in my own brain thought to myself, you know, I work so much because that's what God wants me to, and everything I do is mission-centered, and I like the things. But that's the whole point, though, right? Those of us, and I'm including anyone on this uh, in my audience, whether you're a pastor, a teacher, uh, a, a, a religious professional, or anybody that volunteers, you know, we can easily mask over a compulsion to overworking by simply appealing to our, our sense of calling. You know, God called me to do this work. I don't know how many pastors overwhelmed, but they're caught in the trap of this is what God called me to do, and I simply have to do all these things. But here's the problem, and I'll frame it like a question. 
what happens when the work that I believe I'm doing for the Lord begins to feel like it's eroding the work, especially that deep inner work that God desires to do in me. After all, workaholism is the one addiction for which most spiritual leaders and pastors will likely never be criticized because after all, they're doing the Lord's work. Let's, let, let's listen to a couple of texts, and these are probably familiar passages. I want to read the first paragraph of Genesis chapter 2. This is the seventh day. And then I want to look at the Sabbath commandment in the first rendition of the Ten Commandments in Exodus 28 to 11. Let's hear these two texts. Genesis 2, 1 to 3. Thus the heavens and the earth were finished in all their multitude. On the sixth day, God finished the work that he had done, and he rested on the seventh day from all the work he had done. So God blessed the seventh day and hallowed it, because on it God rested from all the work that he had done in creation. And then following the Exodus at Mount Sinai, Mount Horeb, God gave the Ten Commandments, the Decalogue, as the initial description of what does this missional community that I delivered from Egypt look like. And it's interesting, the middle commandment and the Sabbath commandment, sort of a bridge between the commandments about proper worship of God, loving God, and then the rest of the commandments, loving neighbor, we hear this, remember the Sabbath day and keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but on the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. You shall not do any work, you, your son, or your daughter, your male or female slave, your livestock, or the alien resident in your towns. For in six days the Lord made heaven and earth, the sea, and all that's in them, but rested the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and consecrated it. And you can look at a parallel passage in Deuteronomy where Moses recounts the Ten Commandments. The only real difference there is he adds a couple of more categories that are excluded from work, and the justification of the Sabbath in Deuteronomy isn't the creation itself, but the fact that they had been servants and slaves in Egypt, and so God says, rest. And I'm always grateful for Michaela's question that day. And it brings us back to Scripture because the Bible's opening words challenge my assumption about I was doing the Lord's work, about calling, vocation, and work. When you read the seven days of creation in Genesis 1, 1 to 2, 3, you get a new tone, a new agenda for life as God intends for it to be. In sweeping language, God talks about moving uh, from nothingness, or messiness all the way to the end of day six with a very good creation. And then on the seventh day, God rests. And what we see there is even in the creation itself, God's work is essentially effortless. He just speaks existence over six days. But the cool thing about this, which we don't always think about, I think I first got this insight from Terence Fredheim and his work on Exodus, was that God embeds this rhythm of work for six days and then rest into the very fabric of creation itself. God works, God rests. By implication and by command, so ought we. 
So ponder that deep truth for a second, that the God who created the universe, the God that we talk about here on Deep Dive Spirituality, the God who ultimately sent the sun into the world, stitched rest into the very fabric of our existence. But I'm going to suggest it's even better than you may think just even hearing that, because when you read through, and I invite you to go back when you have some time, read that first chapter of Genesis and those first couple of verses of chapter two on your own, and just notice some things. First, for example, verse two begins with the description of chaotic beginnings. It says the spirit of the Lord was hovering and that the, the earth was a formless void. It was messiness. It's, it's an image of chaos, but God's spirit is there hovering over a formless, empty darkness. But because God is there, God is always ready to act because that's a reminder. And the opening verses are a reminder for everybody who seeks out the God of scriptures. We don't have to appear before God at our best. We don't have to do anything, right? God can start just like God started at the beginning in Genesis. God may have begun with a raw collection of shapeless stuff, but God doesn't end there. God's going to turn that mess of verse 2 into a very good world. That's what 131 says. And that possibility of very goodness, friends, is true of our lives as well. With God, there's always hope for a beautiful tomorrow. And the good news is we don't have to work our way out of any mess or chaos in which we find ourselves. We simply need to rest in the trust and assurance that God is already present to make all things new. And that all things new is a promise that shows up in the image of new creation in Revelation 21. So the whole biblical theme moves us from creation to a new creation. God isn't finished. The second thing we can say is that when you read through Genesis creation, uh, Israel's creation story in Genesis, the six days unfold calmly and without drama. See how that feels in your body. How many of our lives, it's just chaos all the time. It's busyness. It's schedules. It's a list of things that we have to do. It's bustling about. It's being frustrated in traffic. But God's work is almost effortless. And there's no hiccups. There's no false starts. Everything goes exactly as God intends. God simply imagines the elements of creation and then God speaks them into existence. Everybody listening to this knows that when we do creative work, it's it's hard, right? We wait to be inspired, or sometimes we just have to grind it out. It's, it can be toilsome. It can be fun, of course, but it's tiring to be creative. And some of great ideas take years or even a lifetime to ripen fully. But God makes it look easy. But even though it was easy. God still rested on the seventh day. God doesn't keep on creating. God works for six days and then God rests. God's powerful enough to make the work of creation seem simple, but still takes Sabbath off and then embeds rest into the very contours of creation. 
In its original setting, this whole kind of picture of these seven days is a description and even a declaration of God's reign. God is the true king over a creation, and this whole picture of creation here is a picture of God's holy temple, the creation itself. And the original hearers of Genesis would have picked up that implication that God is a good king who reigns over a very good universe. The third thing we can pick up here out of this text is that the last act of creation before rest, and this is where we come in, was the making of women and men, us, to serve as image bearers of God to the rest of creation. This is where that whole idea that's basically one, at least in, in the public opinion, in the world, that every single person who exists has profound dignity. That goes all the way back to the Iron Age scriptures of Israel where every single person matters because we're made in God's image. Not just kings, not just the powerful, not just billionaires, everyone. So powerful. And part of that work, what does it mean to be created in God's image? It's really simple. Uh, at its core, and this is what the, the, the Hebrew word means, it's pronounced tselem. It's like a T-S-E-L-E-M sound if you want to kind of spell that out and sound that out. But that idea of image, that's where, and also other word that's translated as like a little idol. An image is a visible representative of something else. In our case, in the scripture's case, you have the invisible creator God. Images, he creates one part of creation that reflects who God is to every other part of creation, including ourselves. Uh, is that's what it means to be created in God's image. And then God uses the language in Genesis 1 on that sixth day of being fruitful, multiplying, filling the earth, and having dominion, which adds what? Purpose, mention, mission, and intentional work for us. We were created to be God's hands, God's feet, God's mouthpieces to all the rest of creation. So it's almost like God created us, if you want to think about it, as priests in the biggest sense because what's a priest a priest is essentially an ambassador for god we connect the invisible god with the created world and so we humans men and women it's so important for the the that the scriptures themselves they include women as being created in God's image, which again is another radical difference from what the cultures in the ancient world would have done and even some cultures today, even some cultures within Christianity would make women subservient to men. But Genesis just has this beautiful picture of the profound uh, equality between men and women. And so we function as God's priests in God's holy temple, the creation. And our vocation gets even additional clarity in chapter 2 in verse 15, where it talks about, it says, The Lord God took the man, this is where when there was only the man, put him in the Garden of Eden, and listen to the language, to till it and keep it. The language of till and keep it implies creativity and additional co-creation. God just doesn't put us here to just be caretakers. God puts us here to be caretakers who continue to make the garden even more beautiful and to continue to enhance it. 
We take on projects of caring for and enhancing the very good world that God's already made. And as Christians, we can also just pick up some of Paul's language where Paul talks about in Christ, we're a new creation. We become ambassadors to help us think about and live out and understand what it means to live as images of God today. But it's critical then to recognize that Genesis 2 that the Sabbath commandment is part of our mission and it's part of God's gift to humanity. And as we already mentioned, the Sabbath is explicitly extended to people in the Ten Commandments. And in fact, if you continue to read the scriptures, God will even extend the Sabbath rest to God's handiwork, including the land in the animal kingdom. You can look at Exodus 23 verses 10 to 13 where even the land is going to get a rest and and it's the idea that it's going to provide extra food for the animals. And you might even notice in the Sabbath command itself it lists animals so we can't simply take a Sabbath and have another part of creation work for our benefit. There's a fourth thing that comes out of these creation stories that I want you to notice. The work of creation advances from chaos and darkness to order, beauty, and light, and from work to rest. And some of that timing challenges the way we think of things in our modern world. We tend to think of a day as moving from waking up in the morning to getting to the darkness, to the night. But in Genesis, it always flows in a different way. There was evening and there was morning. And also, we often think about we rest so that we can work. But instead, Genesis sets up a model of work that culminates in a rest. So rest is the climax of work. It's not rest so I can work more. And this difference is about moving from darkness to light, from evening to morning, from work to rest, may appear subtle. But with some real reflection We can find a radical challenge to our lives. Life is not a movement towards darkness or endless work. It's so important in our world today where there's this this pressure to be productive and and to uh, work almost excessively. And then on the other hand, there's a whole piece of the culture that simply doesn't want to work. And you want to notice that both of those things distort the biblical image work, meaningful, mission-driven work is critical for life, but so is rest. You know, it's no coincidence that the Bible has this whole idea that the future is going to be better than the past. And so the Bible begins with creation, it ends with new creation, and the Sabbath then, our rest, when we take intentional rest, It invites us to model that reality of that future new creation. And we model rest in a world that's trapped in patterns that dehumanize and enthrone false gods rather than the true creator. And there's an inherent optimism into the biblical rhythms of life. And the last thing is we step back from the whole of 1, 1 to 2, 3 in Genesis. We want to notice the overarching movement. In verse 1, 2, Again, we start with a mess. It's a formless, empty, dark void. But God in days 1 to 6 orders, shapes, and fills it. On days 1 to 5, God remarks that his, his work each day was good. 
And so on days one to five, creation moves from messiness to a state of goodness. Then on day six, God finishes all of God's work by filling the earth with all types of animals and then creates men and women in God's image. And at the very end of day six, God evaluates everything as very good. So just think about that. Creations move from a messy chaos to an in-process goodness to a very good final product. But the good news gets even better as scripture. Then it says there's something even better than very good. And friends, that's what Sabbath is. Sabbath is a space in which all thriving and work ceases. So that's what a Sabbath is. It's no more striving, no more work. And I, you know, you could define work in various ways, but it's nothing that has to do with the regular labor that you do that ultimately brings you resources and allows you to live. You know, I don't think hobbies aren't included here, but for spiritual leaders, we have to be super careful because there's a temptation to always be available. But this would even say if you're a pastor listening to this, you need a Sabbath. Uh, and a Sabbath isn't going to be Sunday because Sundays we're still working, even though because we have to do the work of leading worship. So it needs to be another day for a pastor or for a spiritual leader. And by the way, I do know and uh, that a true Sabbath, according to Scripture, would be Saturday evening, or I'm sorry, Friday evening to Saturday evening. And I'll touch base on that, but this podcast is talking about s- Sabbath in a bigger picture than just what a literal Sabbath would be. Because it, it, we still have to make decisions on how do we practice this in the modern world, which I'm going to get to. So Sabbath is a space in which all striving and work ceases. It's where our identity depends not on what we do or what we have done. Instead, our true identity as men and women created in God's image um, manifests. And as such, God's love for us does not depend on any action we take or any role that we fill. The God of Scripture invites us to, to find true rest and love in his presence. And we're going to see that this Sabbath theme extends and gets reiterated throughout the Bible. I already mentioned the Sabbath commandments anchor both versions of the Ten Commandments in Exodus 20 and then in Deuteronomy 5. We also have commandments in Israel's laws about releasing slaves that's rooted in Sabbath, six years of service released on the seventh year, caring for the land and animals, Exodus 23, 10 to 15, forgiving debts on the seventh year, Deuteronomy 15. And then you have, even in the book of Leviticus, this remarkable year of Jubilee where you have a complete reset after seven, seven-year cycles. So it's, it's profound. In the New Testament, Jesus extends the promise of Sabbath rest to his followers. And here's the invitation. You know, Jesus says, Matthew eleven twenty eight. 28, this is just one example. Come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. So friends, we've been talking about Sabbath the whole time and about rest. So if Jesus offers his disciples rest, why do many of us feel guilty for not working or we simply ignore 
Jesus's invitation to rest because we get so wrapped up in the roles and activities and vocations that we play in life. You know, sometimes we even justify our neglect of not taking time off by appealing to Jesus's action. We'll look at scriptures and we'll say, you know, Jesus did good on the Sabbath and he helped others. So we should too. You may even cite Jesus's words in support of this because like for example, in Mark 2, 27 to 28, Jesus said the Sabbath was was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. So the Son of Man is Lord even of the Sabbath. Or in Mark 3, is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do harm, to save life or to kill? In both of those contexts, Jesus is being provocative. He's challenging a suffocating religious status quo where you couldn't do obvious good things on the Sabbath. And so Jesus did break the Sabbath to make a point, but... but we have to separate out the fact that Jesus broke Sabbath to prevent religious authorities from thwarting the true meaning of Sabbath by suffocating those most desperate for what only God could do for them from using Jesus's example to justify our continual lack of a Sabbath. And I'm going to suggest we're missing the point if you justify never taking a day off by saying, I'm just doing what Jesus did. You know, I continue to ponder that question. My daughter asked me, if, if God who effortlessly created this universe through words alone modeled rest on the Sabbath, on the seventh day, why do I feel the need to work so much? You know, given what scripture teaches, and that's what I just kind of went over, I can't appeal to my calling to justify overwork. So perhaps my desire to overwork and avoid Sabbath points to a deeper truth. You know, maybe if I'm honest, I feel I have something to prove. Maybe I work to cover up that dull ache on the inside that reminds me of past failings, disappointments, or regrets. Maybe I work to prove something to others, that I'm valuable, that I'm enough. Maybe it's a deep longing for absolute security and certainty that depends more on my abilities and strengths or lack thereof apart from a deep trust in God. Or maybe it's actually points to a spiritual problem that I just don't believe that I'm good enough and therefore I have to earn grace and love by working. Since scripture's consistent witness points to the importance of rest, of a Sabbath rest, reading these texts leads me to lean even deeper into my love for God by receiving the gift of Sabbath with open hands. I can simply stop for a day each week any activity that I do for monetary gain or for personal achievement. And those activities include work done in the name of God. You know, and I know you're thinking, well, geez, what about, okay, will there ever be a time 
to shorten a Sabbath rust for the sake of serving and blessing those in need? Of course. But here's the thing, friends. Those occasions need to be rare. If you're looking at your calendar and you haven't taken a day off for multiple weeks, or maybe you'll only get one day, a full day off a month, or, or you have to add the math up, um, you're, I know for myself that I'm likely deceiving myself and modeling for others. And this is the thing where it comes back to it. I end up modeling for others a self-made life rather than a life that truly depends on God. Let me say that again. I mean, you know, the scriptures even talk about sleep, right? And you have uh, places like uh, God doesn't slumber. The implication is I can sleep because God never sleeps, right? And so if I never rest and God invites me to rest, what I'm really saying is look at me, what, how I've made my own life rather than modeling for the people that I want to mentor, that I want to bless and serve, that my life ultimately depends on God. I can give thanks to God for inviting me into an intentional pause so that I can remember. And here's the thing, friends. On Sabbath, we can remember the Sabbath. I can remember who I am, whose I am. I can surrender a little more because I know that I'm safe in the God who loves me. I, I can let go of work or a fear of lack because I know that in Christ I'm enough. And since I'm enough, I can let go of any actions driven by my ego needs or by the shoulds imposed on me by others. I can be still and know that Jesus Christ is Lord and bask in God's love as a means of being able to extend that love to the world. Thus, the call of Sabbath also points us to loving others. I don't take a Sabbath just for me. It's never about me alone. And in scriptures, Sabbath was always communal. And in fact, it's even bigger than that. Sabbath for all creation. Even the creator paused. The challenge of a biblical Sabbath is that communal piece. I can't take a Sabbath and then cause somebody else to break their Sabbath on my behalf. Obviously, to say it that way creates some challenges of implementing because the days of a society-wide Sabbath have been over really since ancient times. There's been some religious communities that did practice Sabbath together, but it's increasingly difficult in the modern world to do that, especially if you're a pastor, let alone just regular folks that ended up being called into work um, with random schedules, especially if you're like in the service industry. A lot of people are off like Mondays and Tuesdays, for example. And guess what? You can take your Sabbath those days. So I'm going to pastor. But what we have to remember is when you read the Sabbath commandment and the Ten Commandments, it's the longest one because people have always looked for loopholes. Oh, I'll get my donkey to do my work. I'll get my servant to do my work. I'll get my son to do my work. I'll get some other person to do my work. No, I can't expect another person to work on my behalf for a Sabbath and even the animals get that Sabbath off. You know, some faith communities still model a communal Sabbath. For example, I've had the, the privilege of teaching Adventist uh, students and they keep a biblical Sabbath. It's Friday night to Saturday night. And I learned a lot about the practice of Sabbath keeping from some of these students. And I'm not advocating that 
that particular model or any particular Sabbath other than to remind ourselves that we're really not honoring the spirit of Sabbath if we don't also then support a Sabbath rest for those around us at some point, right? Everybody needs that opportunity to have a Sabbath every single week. You know, moreover, the application of Sabbath in ancient Israel um, was applied to crop rotation, debt relief, and emancipation of slaves reminds us that Sabbath has justice embedded in it. So when we take that pause, part of our larger life outside of Sabbath then needs to actively be involved in taking action to do good for others and then by implication, avoiding practices that harm others. That can be at the personal level and also at the societal level. We need to work for a just world where we love our neighbor as ourselves. Also in modern economies, we struggle with unemployment and underemployment, and even with people who aren't interested in working at all. And so Sabbath invites us to give pause in order to ponder how best to honor our Creator by finding ways to love our neighbors in these various places in life. So let me just ask, end with some questions here. These are the questions I'm asking myself about Sabbath and invite you to ask yourself, how can I rest today so that I can love my brothers and sisters more authentically over the long haul of life? I'm playing a long game, so how can I rest today so that I can love others more authentically over the long haul. How can I enjoy the abundance of this present moment right now with God as a way to witness to the enoughness of God's provision, provisions for me? You know, these questions bring me back to the opening chapter of Genesis again. God began with a mess, brought it to very goodness, and then added rest on the other side of very goodness. So what if Genesis 1, 1 to 2, 3 isn't merely a story about creation? What if it's an invitation to all of us to true life and true rest? What if Scripture wants to tell me that God is enough for me and that I'm enough for God? Maybe then I'll find the rest and abundance that God's offered us from the beginning. So grateful that my daughter asked me that question, Dad, why do you work so much? Maybe, again, I'll find the rest and abundance that God's offered me from the beginning. What do you think? Will you join me in finding out? And I want to thank you today for listening all the way to the end of this week's episode. Check out the show notes for some more information. Also, to invite you to check out my new website, brianrussellphd.com. You can find links to all of my resources. And again, until next time, show up pay attention. God has way more invested in this than even you do.